This is the Social Pros Podcast, the weekly show for real people doing real work in social media. With your host, Jay Bear of Convince and Convert, and featuring Jeff Roars, Nick Cicero from Expian, and great guests from the world of social media and content marketing. Social Pros is sponsored by Exact Target, a Salesforce.com company, Expian, Janray, powering personalized marketing with customer profile management, and Cision. Ready to learn from the pros? Let's get to work. Welcome back, everybody. This is, in fact, Social Pros. As the announcer just told you, I am still Jay Bear from Convince and Convert. Joined, as always, the band is back together by Jeffrey K. Roars, a recovering attorney and a vice president at Exact Target Marketing Cloud, a division of Salesforce.com, and Nick Cicero live from the Bureau of Manhattan. The borough of Manhattan and the Bureau of Manhattan. <laughs> the, Bureau Nick, of Manhattan. the Bureau of Manhattan. <laughs> Nick is the uh, director of client strategy at Xbion. Was also last week's big guest on the show, pulling double duty. Nick, how are you? Uh, I'm tired. You were tired uh, before, and you're still tired. His tiredness has no finish line, ladies and gentlemen. And this is going to be a fantastic show because uh, my friend and soon-to-be-yours, Bob Norp, is the guest on the podcast today. Bob is a fantastic guy, also a resident of the Bureau of New York City and Manhattan, uh, (laughs) and the founder of the Cool Beans Group and the host of perhaps my favorite podcast, uh, The Beancast, which I've been uh, fortunate enough to have been on uh, in the past. It's sort of like the McLaughlin group but with uh bob, totally bob, bob playing the john mclaughlin uh, role so he uh it's a weekly show like this one and uh each week bob puts together uh, four guests and does a roundtable format we'll make sure to link up all the greatest hits uh from the Beancast. bob welcome to the wonderful wow. world of social pros thank you so much jay it's a pleasure to be here Tell me, Bob, what is it that you do at the Cool Beans Group? I know you've been a a consultant uh, in this great land of ours for quite a while. Why don't you tell the kids at home the kind of things that you help organizations do? You know, I I mainly help people focus their messaging strategies, whether or not we're talking offline or online, uh, help them to understand what their brand really means and get to that core message that you want everybody to remember about your brand. That's essentially what I do. And I've been uh, taking that that skill to a lot of big enterprises, work for Visa, work for Capital One. uh, But now I'm starting to do a lot more startup work. And one of the coolest new features that I'm offering right now is online consulting right from my web site, uh, you can just go to thebeancast.com and find out more information about that. So it sounds like if you want to keep your credit card company uh, messaging straight, then Bob is uh, is your guy. <laughs> or or not, you know what you should do? And actually, I'm totally serious about this. You sh- and maybe you already are doing this, and maybe this is an idea that, that uh, is past, but you should do uh, consulting and messaging and positioning for podcasts because so many people now are starting to do podcasting, mostly uh, because of your great example. And, and in many cases, I don't find a lot of differentiation among them. Maybe that's something that you could help people with. Oh, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that most people forget about podcasts, po- they, they think we're going to do a podcast because we want to get this great information out there, and they forget 
forget that the reason that people listen to podcasts or any audio show is because they want to be entertained. And it's very much important to make sure that you're, you're creating a product, a property that is entertaining and engaging with your audience so that they want to come get the information. Uh, I think that's, that's the one thing that I always tell anybody who wants to get involved with podcasting. I think it's even more important than establishing what your identity is or what your message or brand is on your podcast. It's all about trying to establish what the entertainment factor is. So uh, when did you start the Beancast? You, you've been in the podcasting uh, industry now for a long time. When, when did you start the show and how has it evolved over time? Oh, you know, I, I start. I started it right after Chris Brogan proclaimed that podcasting was dead. So it's been quite a long time. I think uh, <laughs> we'll make sure to lift that up. We we put in a couple of great quotes in every episode, and that will be the quote of the week. Chris Brogan says podcasting is dead. That's going to be fantastic. In fact, I'm going to tweet that out right now. Uh, you, you just keep you just keep talking. This is going to be real time marketing. Oh my God! He was he. It was you know to his credit, he was right. Podcasting was on a downslope, and I of course start decided. Well, I'm going to do it the right way, and I did a podcast right around April 9th of 2008. That was my first episode. I've done over 300 episodes since then. Uh, 50 shows a year for now six years, going on my seventh year right now. Uh, it, it's it's been a journey, and it's been something that evolved from initially just being an opportunity for me to look at the news and provide my own clients with some additional insight based on the, the group consensus of some of the smartest people from around the globe. I, I didn't expect people to listen to it. My first show was listened to by about 50 people. And now, you know, I, I'm serving 70,000 shows a month, uh, so I, I, it's reaching a heck of a lot more people at this point, and it's become a property and an entity unto itself. And, and it always surprises me how much people love the show and how much people want to, you know, look forward to it. I, I, I put out this week's show just about maybe 12 hours late. I uh, usually put it out uh, Sunday night. I put it out Monday morning, and I was already getting emails and tweets going, "Oh, I, are you not doing a show because it's Fourth of July? I and mean, what am I going to do? I, you know, I got to commute in without my show, or I've got to, I've got to ride, or I've got to take my evening oh, you run. You have to ride a mega bus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's crazy. That's it's a nice, crazy. A nice so, reference I mean, to the last show. It's good, good, Nick. Yes, yes. <laughs> So a non sequitur for me. <laughs> yes. Well, I was missing. I, if you may or may not know, Bob, I was stuck on a mega bus for about six hours coming back on the Fourth of July weekend, um, and I did not get a new episode of the Beancast. And I was sitting there on the bus waiting, and I was like, "Am I going to get one? When's it going to come?" I wait. I, personally, I wait every Sunday night, and I listen to them on Sunday nights when you publish them, even if I stay up till one in the morning. So. On that bus, I was looking for my new one. I, I hated, I hated the fact that I couldn't put one out. But oh, you had, uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, there is a latest update to the OS that has completely borked my entire recording process. So I have all these technical issues. I got to figure out with an Apple Genius Bar tomorrow. <laughs> what would you say is is the goal of the Beancast? Uh, show. I mean, you have a different format in that, you know, we always have one guest and, and three hosts for a total of four. You have one host uh, and four guests typically for a total of five. Uh, so you probably have as large, if not the largest panel format podcast in, in all of marketing and advertising. Um, how did that come to pass? Is that intentional? I guess it's intentional at this point. Uh, and, and what do you look at as as the goal of the show? You know, originally the goal of the show was just to connect the smartest people I could and have a meet-the-press style discussion 
where you're taking the news of the week and you're applying some serious brain power that rotates week after week um, and, and gives you some analysis and goes really deep on the, on the latest trends and issues that affect um, digital marketing, social marketing, uh, brand advertising, PR, um, anything that deals with marketing and advertising, I was going to cover it. And I felt like the panel approach gave me uh, a, a much greater perspective that could become valuable to me in my own consulting, but also more valuable to the audience. And now, as it's evolved, uh, I am very much committed toward doing marketing better and educating people about the opportunities that are available through technology, digital, um, social, um, you know, anything that's going on in the in the brand advertising space, anything that's going on in PR. I, I want to look at best practices and give my audience the opportunity to learn. And, and quite frankly, you know, I, I, I say this every time and I feel disingenuous saying this, but I, I learn so much from my show. It is the most sing, single most valuable resource that I have each week for understanding where the industry is moving. Uh, I, I value it that much. And so I think that's why I, I always go out to my audience with so much enthusiasm and say, you know, if I'm getting this much, you can get so much more out of this, you know, because I'm actually studying this stuff each week. I'm actually going and doing the research and I'm still getting a lot out of it. So I, I can imagine somebody who's just cursed, looking through the news in a cursory fashion can get so much more out of this. One of the other things I think is interesting about your show, and it's similar to this show in that it is a longer program, right? It's it's typically an hour. Uh, our show is, you know, clocks in there between 45 and 60 minutes as well. There is conventional wisdom that suggests that podcasts should get shorter because more people have shorter windows in their life than longer windows in their life. You have, have you have eschewed that trend. Yeah. I have always said that's BS. And you know why? It's because people who say that your podcast should be shorter are talking about people who don't listen to podcasts. Uh, that, that is absolutely the case because everybody who listens to podcasts wants podcasts to be longer. They want that hour to hour and a half investment. They choose which podcast they want to listen to, but nobody who loves podcasts wants to listen to a short little five-minute podcast. Um, they want to invest in, in a show and they, and they want a longer discussion. Uh, you know, and, and I, I firmly believe that because a, again and again, people who have told me your podcast should be shorter, your podcast should be shorter, they start listening to the show and then they end up doing things that allow them to listen to it longer and longer and then they become fans of podcasts, not just fans of my show. I mean, I know one person who literally used to say, you got to make it shorter, Bob, you got to make it shorter and then he started going on longer and longer runs and then it became the staple that drove him into actually exercising more. Or, or quit his job so we can listen to podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best possible case. Well, I think I think you're right about that, that if you're going to do a topic justice, sometimes you have to go a little deeper. That's certainly our philosophy here at Social Pros Within Reason. Although, to, to get that audience of people who are um, not necessarily podcast devotees historically, sometimes you do have to change format or do something different. So, for example, um, I rolled out just this week a brand new uh, video podcast called J Today that I record uh, every week, and it's just three minutes a day of here's what I think about this particular topic uh, because I don't blog as much as I used to, so it gives me a chance to kind of do something that's a quick hit, totally different audience, I expect, than the audience uh, for well, this that's, show. That's, that's 
that's entirely different though, Jay, for yeah. two reasons. One, because it's video, and video is a completely different um, format. I know that they both can be put on podcasting, they both can be um, subscribed to via iTunes, but video has a completely different mindset than audio. Audio, it can go much longer than video, and that's just truth across the board. But I think there's also the factor that, you know, when when you're trying to reach people who don't necessarily listen to podcasts, I think we have to make a distinction between what we call podcasting and what we call audio content. Because uh, somebody who wants to hear three-minute podcasts is probably not a subscriber type person, especially when we're talking audio. They're not subscribing to a podcast. They're just finding right. through discovery, oh, this is an interesting topic. I want to learn about this. I'm going to learn, I'm going to download it real quick or I'm going to listen to it on the site and then I'm gone. And, that, and a podcast audience subscribes and invests in the show and, and, and that's something completely different. Hey Bob, this is Nick. I was wondering what, you know, when you have your, a lot of your guests come on, the one thing that I've noticed is that it seems to be that you have a very fluid movement, I think, that in terms of kind of like dialogue going back and forth. Um, like Jay said before, how do you oftentimes get with some of these people and kind of coach them or you know, kind of get them ready for your podcast if they haven't necessarily been uh, like a, a radio personality or any kind of, um, you know, person who produces this kind of audio content. You know, the, the preparation is everything for my show, and, and Jay will tell you, he's been on the program before. Uh, you know, uh, I've had people criticize me for being over-prepared and doing more notes, but one of the things I, I recognized early on were, was that I'm working with people who are not professionals in terms of going on air and talking and being pundits. Uh, they're not used to going on TV. They're not used to being uh, in any kind of setting like this where they're being interviewed. And what I tried to do is I, I create the topics, I create sample questions around the topics, and then I do an extensive clipping uh, usually in Flipboard now, uh, a clipping document of all the different source articles, and I just say, look, this is as easy as it gets. All you have to do is look at the questions um, for each of the topic, prepare some answers, some thoughts about them, and if you don't know something about the topic, you have your clipping document, and you can look. And, and that makes all the difference. Um, the other thing I may spend a lot of time doing is I vet my candidates and I try to cast my shows. I, I never just say, okay, he's a big name and she's a big name and we're going to put them together on a show. It's more about will this person work well with this person or clash with this person and create some drama. And, and I try to cast my show for the kind of conversations that I expect to elicit from the dialogue. And so then, what role do I play on the show, Bob? I'm just I'm just the uh, the, the piece of meat in the middle that uh, occasionally says something humorous, right? That's how that works. <laughs> you're the piece of meat. No, no, Jay. I mean, it's just you're a perfect example of somebody who is has the gift of gab. I mean, I meet a lot of smart people who I put on the show, and suddenly it becomes this. It becomes tooth and nail to try to pull out every single answer, yeah. and you have to ask them every question. And you're one of those people who can jump into the fray, interrupt, and have a conversation. And, and that's the key to having a great podcast when you're doing it in the format that I'm doing it. You know, the call and response, question and answer format of a lot of uh, panels uh, at trade shows is just boring as anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, you, when you want a conversation, you need people jumping in and interrupting and having um, agreement and ahas and laughter. And that's the way a conversation evolves. And I try to add those little elements in to 
help my guests feel comfortable and inspire them to jump in in the same way. What do you think about podcasting for business? Uh, you know, on the on the strategy side of our company, Convince and Convert, we often recommend that brands uh, create podcasts, especially in a B two B environment, a great way to uh, sort of create content and and thought leadership and interview your future customers and shine the spotlight on your current customers and your employees and and all that jazz. We don't have to belabor that point, but. Uh, what do you think about that tactic? Can can companies create podcasts that are credible uh, and viable? Yeah, absolutely they can. And I think that, you know, depending on what you're trying to achieve, what objective you're trying to achieve, I mean, you could have a, a blazing success with a podcast that reach, reaches only 200 of your best customers. I mean, that would be a, that would be a social win. But one of the, the big uh, the caveats I always add into all of these tactics. I mean, whether we're talking about creating a YouTube channel or we're talking about podcasting or even creating a blog, I, I say find your strength first and then magnify that strength. I mean, you know, it, it's a good idea for every company to have a blog, but not every company should start with a blog. I mean, you need to start with your strength. If, if your strength is photography and you happen to be the CEO of a, of a, a landscaping company, well, you know, it's okay to do a photo blog or to do something on Flickr because that makes a lot of sense. You're, you're pulling from a strength and you're creating an audience that's engaged with your content based on that strength. Um, I've heard too many people say, I finally convinced my CEO to do his first blog post. It only took me two years. And I'm going, <laughs> okay, what, when is your second post coming? Because that's when I want you to talk to me. Because, you know, the two years is probably how long it's going to take you to get that second post. No doubt. Every every Olympics, we write a blog post. Um, I, you know, I said that I, I did a, a presentation at the National Speakers Association last uh, week or two weeks ago in, in San Diego about uh, speakers becoming a, a media company and kind of some of the things that I've done at Convince and Convert. And, and, and one of the things I told them was that, you know, media companies don't run on inspiration. They run on consistency. So if you don't want to record a podcast this week, if you don't want to write a blog post this week, if you don't want to... Uh, you know, share an Instagram photo this week. Guess what? You're no longer a media company. You're, you're, you're somebody who just is doing this for fun, and that's okay. That doesn't mean that you're a bad person that you shouldn't do it. But if you're going to try and do this for business, you got to hit your marks, right? The same Amen. reason that you're doing a show over Fourth of July. Well, that's that's exactly it. You need to have commitment because your audience has committed to you. Your audience has come out and said, "I am committing to your show. I'm subscribing to it." And the expectation is that that show will always be there on a regular basis, whether or not it's monthly or quarterly, or whether or not it's um, biweekly, whether or not it's semi-weekly. However, you want to do it, whether it's daily, whatever kind of um, iteration you've decided to commit to your audience, that's what your audience expects for you, from you in return for their commitment to you. So, you know, it, it's super important to have consistency in the way you deliver your content because if you don't, it, you're just going to lose. And, and the other thing is to keep that content at the highest possible quality. You know, there's a lot of statistics out there that say people will last forever on a YouTube video as long as the sound is good. You know, uh, having great sound is super important, and it was one of the reasons why I invested so much in equipment, and I uh, invested in software like SoundSoap to knock out any background hiss. I mean, anything I can do to raise the quality of the show so that it's almost professional, at least AM radio quality professional, so that people feel comfortable downloading it and listening to it, um, it's my commitment to my audience. Well, and when you do it right, that audience will reward you. I've said it offline 
uh, to a number of people. And I don't know if I've ever said it here on the show, but I will right now. Uh, of all the things I'm involved in, and and I'm involved, as you know, in a lot of things, probably more than I should, uh, between the blog and and um, and the new video thing, and books, and eBooks, and speaking, and blah 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 blah. Um, of all the things that I do, the most feedback I get publicly is from this show. And it's not even close. More people come up to me and say, we love social prose than say we love the blog or the book or the speech or whatever combined. Um, there is a visceral connection that podcasting creates that other forms of content don't create. And even though our audience is approximately half of, of your audience, that's perfectly okay with me and with Jeff and with Nick and with our sponsors because we're trying to reach a very particular audience on this show. We're trying to reach people who do social media for a living, period, right? And right. primarily and primarily in mid-sized and large companies. So that's our audience, and, and that's not an infinite audience, uh, and that's okay. We want we want the people who are listening to the show to listen to the show every week, and they do, and uh, we can't thank them it's enough. Symb- it's symbiotic, too, as well. I mean, because, you know, I started off my show, and only 50 people were listening to it for the first you know, a couple months. I mean, it's not like you can just do a podcast and attract audience. And one of the the advantages to your show is that you you're, you're an author. You're you have a successful business that people know about. You've um you, you write the blog. You've been doing all these other things, and the show becomes a natural extension for people to easily connect with the the Jay Bear who you are and with the Nick Cicero who you are. I mean, to connect with these people, it's it it, it becomes essential to have that back background or you know that that other machine working as well to try to create some additional engagement um, you know my show would not be as popular as it was without my Twitter presence without my Facebook presence without the uh, conversations that I've created via articles that I post on ad age I mean these things all work symbiotically together and you know you, you can't just do the one thing you have to put together something that uh, an engine if you will that feeds everything Hey Bob, it's Jeff Roars. You, you said my favorite word in there, and that is audience. Um, what are what are the three uh, activities that you would say have helped you grow your audience the best, the most, over the course of your podcast history? You know, I, I always joke. Probably the the best way that I've grown my audience is my business card. I mean, just walking up to people at a, an event and saying. I'm Bob Norp. Here's my card. There's a show I do. Here, it's at the website. Go check it out. I would love for you to give me your feedback on this. And one handshake at a time, I've grown this audience. And then, you know, the people who meet me are the ones who are most enthusiastic about the show, and they talk about it to other people. Um, next up, probably uh, Twitter. I mean, Twitter in the early days. Twitter right now is not so great at um, promoting this type of content because most of the social media advertising world has become jaded and they just push messaging and they don't really react and talk about things anymore. I mean, Twitter is still a viable platform for a lot of other venues, but it's not a great venue for me to grow my audience anymore. But um, Twitter in the early days, fantastic for uh, getting attention and pushing things out there. And I think, you know, one of the other things that I, I can't 
thank people enough for is the guests themselves. One of the strategies I had early on was to, because I was doing a panel show, I was strategically asking people with audiences to be on the panel. I mean, I was still casting it very carefully and doing the chemistry thing, but I understood that the audiences of the people I was bringing on the show would become my audience because people follow their favorite stars, their favorite pundits, and they want to hear more of them. And it became an opportunity for me to grow my audience. I, I mean, I give Joe Jaffe some of the biggest credit for my success because Joe, every time he was on, he posted my show in his um, RSS feed. And over the course of a year and a half, I got all few thousand of his audience to eventually subscribe to me. Um, that's one of the best ways to do it, you know. And again, that comes down to relationship building, finding that one are two key influencers, treating them right, and then getting the benefits of uh, having them treat you right in return. So have you thought about having Lady Gaga on your show? She has a huge audience. Definitely. Yeah, well, you know, so <laughs> I, I would love to have Lady Gaga on the show. Don't get me wrong. And I have put a lot of um, uh, major media celebrities, like news people, like Natalie Morris, who's on CNBC, um, uh, Becky Worley, who's on ABC. I'm going to put some some TV personalities on my show, and I gen generally don't get much of a bump from them, um, just because the audiences are different and uh, the type of things that. Well, is it because is it because they don't carry their own individual audience? They're they're really no no they carry yeah. huge individual audiences. It's just that their audiences are primarily based in the tech industry, and wow, because okay. of that, um, I'm talking about a very small narrow niche, which is marketing and advertising. I once when I first started out the show, I said my probably the best I can do in terms of an audience side is about 11,000 people per show. And it's, it's, you know, it's surprising. I pulled that number out of my butt when I first started. And the reality is that's, that's pretty much the average that you can reach uh, on a weekly basis is about 11,000, maybe a little bit more if you're exceptionally popular uh, or you're, and if you're a broader topic, much, much bigger. But, you know, basically you have uh, right now something like 400, 500,000 choices and only 11% of the uh, U.S. audience is actually listening to the podcast. So when you start doing the math and crunching it down into this small little niche of advertising, it, there's not a lot of opportunity there. So you have to make it count and you have to make it count um, as a value proposition as opposed to an audience size proposition. So I've got uh, two more things I want to explore, and one is right off of that topic. What do you wish would change in terms of podcast distribution to increase the the available audience potential? Oh, you know, the, the best thing that could happen to podcasting is free bandwidth on the mobile phones, or at least get rid of those mobile caps, because um, one of some of the most exciting things I'm seeing are, are services like Stitcher, even though Stitcher is you know, popping ads on my podcast and not paying me anything. The, the reality is it's increasing my distribution so much and the people who use Stitcher love it. And I think that if, you know, any of these services like uh, RDO or Pandora, all these services would benefit from ubiquitous streaming via mobile signal carriers. And I, I think that would be the one way that we could increase audience so much more because that's when people listen to podcasts. They listen to it in their car, when they're traveling, when they're in a plane, when they're in an airport, you know, places where Wi-Fi is going to cost them or potentially not be available at all. Well, I saw that T-Mobile is giving uh, free bandwidth to uh, music streaming, so hopefully it's not too far off that they'll do it for uh, you know, the podcast. 
Yeah, we can hope. Distribution channel. <laughs> we yeah. can hope. You know, podcast has always been the uh, ugly redheaded stepchild of the entire uh, pod uh, of the entire online streaming world. I mean, I still can't understand why uh, iTunes doesn't give us analytics for the types of podcasts that we're downloading. I mean, if they charge $5 per podcaster just to have access to the analytics that we know that they already have, that, that would be a few million dollar business with having to do nothing more than turn on a front end web page. I mean, that, I just don't understand why they wouldn't do that. Yeah. So let me conclude my, my questioning by following up with uh, something that, that you've said about uh, that, you, that we are, uh, as a generation of marketers, perhaps valuing disruption more than we should. Can you add some color to that? Why do you, why do you feel that way? What are some examples where you feel disruption is, is getting greater value and we should be putting our effort and our attention elsewhere? You know, this comes, this comes from an article that Jill Lepore wrote in The New Yorker a few weeks back. It got a lot of attention because it took on one of the seminal works of the tech industry, which is The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. And uh, essentially, um, Mr. Christensen proposed the idea that disruptive innovation was essential for every business and that if you weren't disrupting your business model to create innovation within your ranks, you were toast. And he used all these examples in his book. Yet, Joe Lepore, looking at it some years later, says all of these examples fall flat because all the companies he was saying are now at the mercy of these innovative, you know, disruptive startups all survived and thrived and have grown. And she posits the idea that disruption is not something that you need to foster within the enterprise. Disruption is what you do to other companies. And disruption is what you know, startups do to try to make a name for themselves. But innovation needs to be a methodical, well-thought-out uh, process. And I think the, the real the, the key thing for me about this article that's made me want to talk about it more and more, I, I just talked about this at some length on Mitch Joel's uh, Six Pixels of Separation, which will be out soon. Um, you know, this whole thing about innovation and disruption, they need to be separate. It's not disruptive innovation. You need to create disruption in the market and you need to be innovative, but you don't need to be disruptively innovative every single time you go out. You, you know that that's just a recipe for disaster for a lot of companies um, if they if they are creating this artificial sense of disruption and throwing out their business model and reinventing themselves uh, over and over and over again in a radical fashion th that's not being innovative and quite frankly in most cases that's just being stupid Are there companies out there that, that you think epitomize that flawed thinking or, or movements, uh, the Yo app, uh, for example, or, or something else that, that you think uh, kind of crystallizes uh, that notion? Uh, about the disruption being harmful or disruption uh, or innovation being good? Because, I mean, I've got lots of examples of innovation being methodical. Um, you, you, you look at IBM, you know, IBM has had radical transformation in their business and again and again people predicted the end of IBM you know when you know first they were in typewriters and then they were in computers and now they're in business consult um, business consulting I mean they just kept reinventing themselves but they did it slowly methodically and through a pod-based structure within their organization that allowed them to assess which innovations made the most sense and move 
in that direction very, very cautiously. I mean, you can even look at, you know, you can say Apple has disrupted the industry. And yes, they did disrupt the industry, but they didn't disrupt their own business model and throw everything out. They didn't just get rid of the, the, the personal computer in favor of an iPad. Um, they didn't just come up with an iPhone. They looked at what smartphones were in the market, and they made the smartphone better. They looked at tablets, saw what was wrong with them, and made tablets better. They looked at computers, and they made computers better. It's always been this, sl this slow process of iterative innovation. And it, it's, it's kind of interesting. One of Jill Lepore's main points is that the, the predictive factor of success of a business is not how disruptively innovative they are. It's how good their management is and how strong their management, basically what their managers do to foster a culture of always forward thinking, of anticipating need, and, and carefully assessing where the, 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 the space is moving, where the trends are moving, and then acting in, in, a, in a very methodical fashion to get ahead of the curve. Yeah, no question. As a as somebody who does a lot of angel investing and venture capital, I wrote a post about it last week. Uh, you know, we we find that in many cases it's more about the jockey than it is about the horse. That <laughs> you know that that the the person is the innovator more so than the product being innovative. Uh, and and I think that gets overlooked uh, because we are so trained now to worship uh, on the altar of technology. Uh, in some cases, I think we we are overemphasizing that one facet. Oh, absolutely. And there's so much enthusiasm, especially when you get into the valley, um, the Silicon Valley. I mean, there's so much enthusiasm, and sometimes it's enthusiasm without any kind of brain behind it. It's, it's more about placing smart bets. I mean, when people talk about VCs, again and again, you hear about, well, they just place 10, 20 bets in this particular space, and if one of them pays out, it pays for all the bad bets. And I'm kind of like that. That's just like playing a uh, that's like playing a Vegas casino. That's not making a smart business decision. Uh, now I'm not mocking the VCs because the VCs have a very tough situation in front of them in deciding which businesses to invest in. That's that's always a risky proposition. But you know you don't have that same situation in a lot of enterprises. What you have is um, disruptors out in the market who are making noise, creating problems for you, and what you need to do is be anticipating what those disruptions are going to be and innovate in a slow, methodical, well-managed way. Um, be nimble, but be smart about it. Um, you know, people talk about the fact that you know 3D printing is going to completely disrupt so much of the manufacturing world, and that you know businesses that don't get ahead of this or don't disrupt their business model and get into the 3D printing business are going to be you know real losers. And I always say, you know, 3D printing has been on the table for over a decade, and if there isn't a business out there that isn't already addressing this in some methodical fashion, then they deserve to be overtaken by the 3D disruptors out there. Um, it's something that businesses have been aware of um, and they're just they're just biding their time waiting for the solutions to catch up to where they need to be for their businesses so that they can integrate them slowly into the business model. You know, it, Jay, do you remember, did you ever see True Lie, um, I'm, I'm sorry, True Stories which is a, a movie by David Byrne uh, back in the 90s? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, it's a multi-purpose shape. It's a box. I, I, that's one of my favorite lines from the movie. You know, it's one a of multi-purpose my purpose shape. It's a box. 
one of my favorite one of my favorite scenes from that movie is uh, where Spalding Gray gives his big speech at the dinner table, and he's essentially describing what happened during the tech boom about ten years before the tech boom happened. He describes how you know the, he's in this big computer company in Texas, and how it's inspired all these workers to go off and form their own companies and ex express themselves and do ideas. And once those ideas take fruition, the big company will swallow all these ideas back in and make the mothership even more powerful. And now that's paraphrasing, but essentially in 1990, he described the entire tech bubble. He described how all these innovators went out and they created these amazing things and then the big companies swallowed them back in and then again there was innovation and they all spread out and a whole bunch of startups happened and that inspires the big companies to make the smart moves and place the smart bets and buy them back and bring them in. It, it's a cyclical process. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, Bob, and, and I think that even today you can think about it more and more. You have a lot of companies that are out there, and uh, granted, I work for what one would technically call a startup in that way. Um, we're not VC-funded, but you know, having worked at a VC-funded company, um, a lot of that is built upon you know going back with a tech company and the mothership. When those folks go off and they get funding and whatnot, that's generally built in, in you know, I'm not a business or a finance major in college. I was a music major, so... Some of my numbers may be off a little bit here, but generally, <laughs> if you think about um, if you think about the, the the VC kind of marketplace today and funding companies and whatnot, that's coming from a place where people generally have either money to invest going in, they're going in investing their money um, because you know whether it's for tax purposes or whether it's you know they're really really rich and they've made money in a lot <laughs> of other places. You know, you have and and I've kind of called it uh, in a couple places to some people almost this invisible economy where you have a whole series where you're able to have a lot of companies valued at a lot of different you know, millions and millions or billions of dollars and have other companies then buying them up, which then get bought up in other companies that describes just exactly what you said again. Um, is it a bad thing? I don't know. I mean, I think that it's obviously providing um, the means for a lot of innovation. And like I said before, if you're an employee at some of these companies, it's your paycheck, it's your livelihood. Um, certainly at the companies that I've worked for, I've been very thankful for, for being able to pay my bills based on working and innovating. Um, but it does feel like that, doesn't it? It feels like there is this this bigger hand that's playing and everybody's going off and building their own things and, and we do go through these ways where everybody comes back together uh, and starts to build something together and then they go back off and do their own thing again. Um, so I find that, that really interesting. I need to check out that movie. Yeah, it, it's 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 a short scene and you can actually get that scene on on YouTube if you search Spalding Gray and True Stories. Um, it, it's just a fascinating it's it's a it's a really kind of funny little segment, but it's uh it's worth watching just for the fact that it describes exactly what goes on in business. We'll have to um, embed it we'll embed it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought we were talking about true lies. If we were talking about true lies for a second, that'd be a different movie. Conversation. No, that's an entirely different. <laughs> yeah, I started off saying true lives, but true yeah. lies, but that is a different movie. <laughs> That'd be a totally different favorite scene potentially in that movie. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. And I think we all thought of the same scene at the same time. <laughs> that's right. Speaking of uh, speaking of things that are our favorites, uh, I want to tell you about some of our favorite companies in the whole world, and they are the sponsors of this here podcast, Social Pros. Uh, first, our good friends at Exact Target Marketing Cloud, they have uh, a brand new downloadable for free uh, ebook called the 20 Winning Email Designs. You know, I've said this before, and I say it to clients all the time, of all the different uh, facets of digital marketing, all the things that you could do or talk about, really the only one thing that everybody needs is good email. 
everybody needs to do email better. And this email swipe file showcase from Exact Target can help you do just that. It's called 20 Winning Email Designs. A lot of really interesting case studies of, of newfangled emails that are actually working in the field for real. Download it. Everybody can benefit from it. It's bit.ly slash winning email bit.ly slash winning email all lowercase from our friends at exact target the show is also brought to you by the good people at cision the leading provider of software services and tools to the public relations industry if you need to know who's talking about your company if you need to know the key media important influencers in your category you need cision Cision has a free downloadable guide about content amplification called Six Tips to Help Amplify Your Content. You can download that for free. It gives you all kinds of actionable insights on how to get your story in front of the right people at the right time. You can grab that right now or as soon as you're done listening to this show at bit.ly slash amplify Cision. That's bit.ly slash amplify Cision, all lower case. Okay, Jeff, it is time for the social media number of the week. So I'm going to do a little bit of a different one this week because uh, it seems like everybody here on the podcast has been running into some sort of technical difficulties with their computer. And uh, as we tape this, it was just announced that the, uh, the TSA is quite likely to have inbound flights from Europe and passengers on those flights be booting up their electronic devices. Uh, as they go through security to prove that they, they don't pose a threat. Um, and it's no specific threat that they're reacting to. It's supposedly something that they just do. They'll, they'll change their different tactics. But this got me thinking, and I timed my boot up on my, uh, my work laptop here, which runs Windows, at, uh, at about 70 seconds or so. And I am thinking about just the cascading domino effect of having people have to boot up their various devices. I don't know about you gentlemen, but I usually carry three in my, uh, in my backpack. I've got the laptop, I've got the cell phone, and I've got the, the Amazon Kindle. The last two are pretty easy to boot up, but just the fact that you would have uh, all these folks who are carrying their laptops, and uh, many of whom might be going through uh, pre-screened type of uh, security measures, trying to boot them up. I'm I'm fearful for the future that we have in security lines, if that's the case, and wondering, uh, you know, how TSA manages that then from a social and customer service standpoint, because it is bound to generate a lot of inbound questions, concerns, and complaints uh, as it's rolled out. So, uh, Jay, as the most frequent of frequent travelers amongst the bunch. I'm interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I saw that same announcement. It kind of freaked me out as well. I guess the good news is that I almost never turn anything off. So, you know, I'm usually on anyway, but I saw something that somebody said, well, what if your battery's dead? You know, and so now you've got to go get out of security line, charge up your Kindle or your laptop or your phone until you have enough power to turn it back on. Uh, and now you miss your flight because your battery was dead. You know, obviously people will will start to learn the norms the same way we learned you can't bring water through security anymore. Uh, but this seems um, like, as many things uh, affiliated with the TSA, not a terrible idea on the surface, but remarkably poorly communicated. Uh, not any different, really, from the whole. Uh, uh, TSA pre-line, which constantly every week in Indianapolis, there's somebody who's approximately 117 years old in the TSA pre-line because the airline <laughs> opted them in. They have no idea. So the TSA pre-line is now slower than the regular line 
because they're like, what do you mean? I don't have to take off my shoes. And I was like, this whole explanation. And you can tell the TSA agents are super frustrated about it as well. So it's one of those uh, in a long list of things that is well-intentioned, but incredibly poorly communicated. I mean, Facebook looks like the best communicating company in the world uh, when you juxtapose it with the TSA. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you there, and and, and certainly we're all very empathetic for the, the challenge that they have uh, in trying to keep, uh, <coughs> pardon me, fly, you know, flyers safe. Um, but there there certainly has got to be a better way in the age of social media for them to engage and communicate because, you know, with those frequent flyers, that's who, you know, it's going to aggregate, aggravate and frustrate the most. And uh, as, as we can attest, we tend to be squeaky wheels when we're disrupted in our flight patterns. Yeah, I don't know if you guys heard, but today somebody, well, apparently they found, like, knives hidden underneath his feet. Somebody was, was going through, so I think that we'll be barefoot and turning on all our devices forever and a day. And Did so. you say mice or knives? Knives. knives okay. Like a, I want, cause if, there's, if there's mice hidden under their feet, that's a whole different type of, uh, of terrorist threat. Yeah. And yet, and yet, well, and yet the the latest studies that I've seen over the last twelve months have shown that you know the TSA is doing absolutely zero to prevent uh, any kind of terrorist threats, and that's based on stress testing of the system and how many devices and how many contraband items get through the the screening process just in, just in testing. So you know it, it kind of begs the question. You know what we're doing every time we adjust the process for the TSA is reacting to the last thing that went through, as opposed to proactively seeking out what are they going to do next. And you know if we're always reacting to what was done before, like you know somebody puts a shoe bomb, in, you know gets a shoe bomb onto a plane, and suddenly we're all taking our shoes off. You know there's probably never going to be a shoe bomb again. You know, because it's not because they're screening for it. It's because it didn't work the first time. Uh, we need a better process of screening that is more proactive. Uh, we need big data, Jay. We need big data, Nick. <laughs> yeah, it really is a reactive reactive process, right? Um, and if there is a mice bomber, if, if there's a rodent bomber, well, then we'll be reactive about that. Absolutely. So thanks for the topic, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was good. Well, all right, Nick, I'm going to get you ready uh, for Holy Social. But first, I want to remind folks about our other two fantastic sponsors of the show, including XBeyond, Nick's company. XBeyond has a centralized platform that powers global brands, agencies, and retailers to manage their complex social marketing efforts. If you have not taken a look at XBeyond's software recently, you should absolutely do so. Also, a brand new website for XBeyond.com. Well done, boys. Nicely uh, put together for the folks at XBeyond. So if you haven't done a demo and you haven't seen what they can do, you owe yourself uh, to, you, you really should make that happen. And you can ask for Nick and Nick will do the demo and he'll be your friend and he will walk you through all the wonders that are uh, present in the XBeyond software. Just go to XBeyond.com, E-X-P-I-O-N.com. Sign up for a demo. Tell me when to talk to Nick and magical things will happen. And I also want to tell everybody that this show is brought to you by the good people at Jan Rain, the leaders in social login and social profile data collection services. Great guys out of Portland, terrific company, making all kinds of progress. If you go to a website and you're asked to uh, create an account just by clicking the Facebook button, 
or a LinkedIn button or a Google button or a Twitter button, et cetera. You know what I'm talking about. In many cases, that technology is powered by the good folks at JanRain, uh, which not only improves your conversion rates, but then as a marketer, you get access to all that social media data. Really, really useful for increasing the relevancy uh, and therefore the usefulness of your marketing downstream. So give those guys a shout, janrain.com, J-A-N-R-A-I-N, Jan like Brady, rain like moisture, dot com thanks to them okay nick are you ready it is time for holy social what do you have for us this week i am ready break out your peanuts and cracker jacks ladies and gentlemen because cracker jack is trying to break out now i don't know if you guys um happen to catch the article that was in the new york times recently it was actually on my birthday so that's probably why i was paying so close attention to it um, but CrackerJack.com is actually opening up kind of a new uh, a new campaign that's designed to really uh, invigorate mothers in social media. Um, I love moms. I love my mom, and I was hanging out with my mom last night, and I started to think a little bit about more uh, about this campaign as I was kind of writing my notes. Um, and they're basically coming up with this thing that they call the Surprise Inside Project. And now CrackerJack is known for what? the prize in the bottom of the box, of course. And so instead of, of just giving out prizes, what they're actually doing is um, they're creating what they call small surprises. And, and you know, the big header uh, on, side, on the Facebook app, which we'll link up in the show notes, says sometimes it's the smallest surprises that make the biggest impression. So Cracker Jack is actually um, inviting mothers to go in and submit different things that they think, small surprises, that they think that uh, their child would really like a child, a friend, a family, with a value of up to $20. Um, they suggest maybe a gift certificate to go out with some ice cream or a set of squirt guns and water balloons for a water fight or a, a mini golf outing. Um, but basically, you, you, they're inviting people to create this story and to, to gift one of these potential uh, small surprises to a friend. And Cracker Jack, when, the, when they're done uh, accepting entries, they're actually going to go out and they're going to pick 200 of these stories. And they're actually going to procure the items themselves and they're going to go out and make sure that they uh, deliver them. So they're going to have people, ideally, you know, they're going to probably, this looks like it says here, they're activating the hashtag CJ Surprise um, to post videos of the prizes being presented and as people use them. And I thought that it was taking a really awesome idea uh, something that's very iconic in your brand and turning it on its head a little bit and making it far more shareable and far more social today. Uh, and it seems like really nice and wholesome as well, especially you know, when you're going after moms. Well, that's what I like best about it. Not the wholesomeness part. That's not really my bag, but the the fact that it's on brand, right? We see so many exactly. social activations. We talk about this on the Beancast all the time. Bob's fantastic show. Not necessarily social media fails, but but just things that that don't feel appropriate to the brand. And the fact that you know, prize inside is their differentiator. I mean, you can get caramel corn from a lot of people, um, but the fact that they've got the prize inside and they're capitalizing on that very distinct differentiator, I think, is really really smart. Now. Uh, it seems to me like if this goes even modestly well, this could be something that they go back to this well over and over, right? It's, it's you know, the 2015 campaign, the 2016 campaign. They could really milk this uh, for a long time. And, and a lot of brands can't do that either because they don't associate brand differentiators to a particular social campaign uh, or they just don't have anything to differentiate themselves to begin with, right? They have no raw materials to work with. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that you could see an easy social good campaign out of this. The surprise inside, where they, you know, maybe suggest a school to bring surprise. I mean, there's just a lot of extensions that you can kind of run with this year after year. So, um, yeah, like you said again, I really loved it because it, it had to do with Cracker Jack, and that's what everybody knows Cracker Jack for is the prize. So I was really happy to see this. 
All right, Bob, we're going to wrap it up with you, Bob Norp. Okay. Founder of the founder of the Cool Beans Group, host of the Beancast. Which, if you have not listened to the Beancast, you really need to make that happen. I suspect that many of our listeners are familiar with the show, but some of them aren't. I, I guarantee there's not perfect overlap. So we're going to make sure that you give it a shot. It will be your new second favorite podcast, Bob. We're going to ask you. <laughs> we're going to ask you the two questions that we ask everybody, uh, which is Uh-oh. question number one. Uh, what tip do you give people looking to become a social pro? Wow. So, you know, I already gave that tip. Always look for your strength. I mean, when, when you look to find out how you want to get involved with social media, the best place to start is the place where you can be most consistent. So if you're a photographer, look at the photo sites. If you're a videographer, if you'd like to take videos, look at YouTube. If you're um, somebody who likes pithy statements, make sure you're on Twitter. Um, if you like to write books and get into deeper discussions, I mean, look at Google+. I mean, you know, it's, it's more about starting off in that strength and getting your toes wet um, by doing the thing that you're best at. And the rest will eventually snowball into, into shape. And eventually you'll have a much more robust social program. It's a great answer. Find out what you're disproportionately good at and do more of that, right? Um, exactly. And, and also, I think not just what you're good at, but also what you enjoy. Because, mm-hmm. you know, quality, you know, passion creates quality accidentally. I've discovered. Very, very well put. Very well put. I've discovered that to be true. Um, accidentally. Second question, the final question for our friend Bob Norp. Uh, and Bob, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, if you could do a Skype call, with any living person, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. That is like the hardest question I have gotten like in forever. Um, not, maybe Lady Gaga, who Jeff mentioned earlier, but uh, not, no, uh, not Lady no, Gaga. No, I've got, I've got this figured out because I, I am a big fan of Leo Laporte and what he's done for the cause of podcasting. And I would love to sit down on a call and talk to Leo about, you know, a little bit more about his thoughts on the industry, where it's going. I think I'd learn a lot about how to do my show better just from sitting at his feet for a few minutes. I think you could probably make that happen, Bob. I think you could pull that together. I think uh, I'm well on my way to making that happen. I've already done Marketing Mavericks a few times, and I'm I'm making my way into the Twit Network. There you go. Well done. That's a good answer. And and there's some folks who listen to the show who may not be familiar with Leo's work as sort of the godfather of of, uh, of podcasting. We'll make sure to to link up some of his assets so people can get familiar. That's a great answer. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's he's definitely somebody that everybody should pay attention to, especially if you love technology. I mean, his show is the seminal discussion about the marketing trend. I mean, sorry, the trends and issues that are facing the technology space. No doubt. No doubt. Bob, thanks so much for being on the show. You were fantastic as expected. And as always, thank you for having me on your show from time to time. It's a real honor to spend some time with you and your panel of guests on occasion. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me on the program. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, next week on the big Social Pros podcast, we're going to have Dan Gingas from Discover.com. It's ironic. Uh, Bob was just talking about his work uh, in the credit card industry uh, during this show. And next week, we actually have the credit card industry represented on the show. Maybe we should have Bob back next week to ask probing questions to uh, Dan Gingas. That will be next week, and then we've got several other guests lined up here over the next uh, two or three weeks. Jeff's going to go on vacation for a little while, a big family reunion uh, in New Hampshire. So Jeff will miss a couple of shows, so Nick and I will uh, hold down the fort. 
Thanks to everybody for listening to Social Pros. We appreciate your feedback. As mentioned, I love it every time somebody comes up to me and says they listen to the show. It keeps us uh, wanting to do this week after week. So on behalf of Jeff Roars and Nick Cicero, I'm Jay Bear. This has been Social Pros. Thanks for listening to Social Pros, the show for real people doing real work in social media. Please tell your friends about the show. Subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher and view all episodes at socialpros.com. Until next week, thanks to Cision, Janray, XPN, and ExactTarget, a Salesforce.com company.